Well, today we're going to wrap up our study in the book of Revelation. We're going to be talking about chapter 22. Before we begin, why don't we have a word of prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, again, we look to you as we look at the pages of your word, and we look to you for clarity, we look to you for understanding, we look to you for the grace to apply the things that we are reading to our lives, to take them seriously and let them impact uh, how we live our lives and uh, impact how we spread the good news about Christ. Give us uh, greater and greater understanding, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at uh, chapter 22 today, and then uh, when I get to the end, I'm going to answer a few questions that were sent into me. Uh, before we get into 22, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about chapter 21 because it sets the context for what we're going to be looking at here today. Uh, in Revelation chapter 21, we read about the fact that there was going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, I think some people, when they think about eternity or they think about this idea of going to heaven, uh, they get this idea that for all of eternity, we're going to be kind of hanging around the clouds up in the sky someplace. And in the book of Revelation, we see that our eternal destiny is going to be this new earth that God is going to create. And, and so it gives us at least some sense in terms of what's coming because we can look around our earth right now and we see certain things and we enjoy certain things. We realize that everything in this world right now has been scarred by sin, but ultimately it's gonna be this new created world in which we're gonna live and spend an eternity. In addition to this new world though, we looked in chapter 21 and read about a city that was gonna be coming down from heaven, a heavenly city. It was called the Heavenly Jerusalem. And it is a remarkable city in many different ways. It's described, for example, as being radiant, like a rare jewel or a jasper, and also clear as crystal. Uh, I think it's hard for us sometimes to imagine what that would look like. Uh, we read that its walls are made of pure gold, and so will the streets of the city be made of gold. What's unique about the gold that's described is that it's called clear as glass. Now, I think John, in writing about these things, he's, he's trying to put on paper some things that he's seeing with his eyes, and he can only describe them in ways that we can try to understand them. I think some of these things are gonna be so amazing that they're gonna be really hard for us to grab a hold of. Uh, one of the characteristics of the city is that it was gonna have 12 gates that were each going to be made of a single pearl. Now, I don't know how that's gonna work as well. And it also has 12 foundations, and each of the foundations is made of a precious jewel. And so you get this sense that the foundations are gonna be absolutely gl glorious in their colors, and, and uh, again, the radiance, the idea of radiance is gonna be absolutely beautiful. And then we read that God's glory is gonna illuminate this city so that there's not gonna be a need for the sun or the moon. And so God himself is providing the light for this just by his, I think it's just his glory is gonna be throughout the city and would dispel any darkness. <coughs> Now, for me, one of the most difficult qualities for me to grab a hold of when I think of this city that's coming out from heaven is the dimensions of the city, because we read that the city is 1,400 miles tall, wide, and long. 
And this is just hard for me to fathom. If you were to jump in a car from Morgantown, West Virginia, and drive all the way to Dallas, Texas, and then go 200 more miles, that is how wide this city is, that is how long this city is, and it's also how tall it is ascending into the heavens. And so it just sounds like an amazing, an amazing place that again is a little bit hard for us to to understand or conceive of. When we get to chapter 22, We continue the picture, only what we see in chapter 22 of this city is the focus on the throne of God and the throne of Jesus Christ. And so that's where the emphasis in the final chapter of Revelation is, where God and Jesus Christ are going to reign forever and ever within this city. With that in mind, let's begin reading in verse 1. Then he showed me the river of living water. Of course, John is writing... And he says, he showed me the, the river of living water. Living water, by the way, is a reference to flowing water in the Bible. Uh, whenever you see it, it's, a, 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 it's a water that's not stagnant, but is flowing. He showed me a river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. Now, let's stop right there, and we're stopping in the middle of verse 2. Zechariah, the prophet in the Old Testament, uh, talked about something similar in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. And in Zechariah, what we're reading about is the millennial kingdom, but notice the similarity. He writes, on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. On that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth, Yahweh alone in his name alone. Now, what I want to note here, and we're going to see this again in a minute in the book of uh, Ezekiel, that the millennial kingdom in which Christ is going to reign seems like it's modeled after this eternal kingdom. In other words, the descriptions are similar in a lot of different ways, and I think it's to give us a picture of what's to come. Continuing in verse Uh, Second part of verse two and into three. The tree of life, we read in Revelation 22, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Now, when you read this in Revelation 22, what comes to your mind? Immediately for me, my mind goes back to the Garden of Eden. There are certain things about this description that remind me of the Garden of Eden. And I've mentioned before that our understanding of Revelation is really based on understanding what happened in Genesis and Exodus, and then the other key uh, book of the Bible that helps us understand Revelation is the book of Daniel. But anyway, we read this description of a river the emphasis on rivers, and, and we're going to see this emphasis on the tree. It talks about the tree for healing, the, the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. Uh, in, in Genesis, we read the same thing. It describes the Garden of Eden in terms of located between certain rivers. And then, of course, the book of Revelation talks a lot about some trees, which we'll get into in a little bit. Now, you remember back in Genesis that there was this reference to the tree of life. 
And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and an angel was placed there at the entrance of the garden so that they couldn't enter again. In fact, there was a sword that looks like it was swinging back and forth so that they could not take from the tree of life. And so we read about that in Genesis chapter three and verse 24. We read, he drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in Genesis 22, again, I'm bringing this up because we read about a tree of life there, and I believe it's the same tree of life. The implication is that if Adam and Eve had stayed in the Garden of Eden, they could have continued to eat from that tree of life, and they would never have died. And so God put an angel there and guarded it with, it calls it a swirling sword to make sure that they didn't go in and eat from that tree. When we get to Revelation 22, our eternal destiny, we realize that there's gonna be a tree of life there as well, only we're going to be able to eat freely from it. Now this tree of life was introduced earlier in the book of Revelation chapter two in verse seven, where we read, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life which is in God's Paradise. This is a promise related to the fact that those who overcome are going to be ones that are going to have the right to eat from this tree. Now, what this tells me, which is kind of interesting, is that we're going to be able to eat in our, with our glorified bodies and everything else. Of course, Jesus ate with his glorified body as well, but we're going to be able to enjoy food. Now, this tree that's described in Revelation 22, this tree of life is unique in two different ways. First of all, it bears different kinds of fruit, specifically 12 kinds of fruit. Now, this could be a reference to a tree that every month produces a different kind of fruit, or else it's a tree that all the time produces 12 kinds of fruit, so you can pick the kind of fruit you want, which is really a, a marvelous idea. Uh, The second characteristic of this tree that's kind of interesting is it describes the fact that the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, that raises a question in my mind because who's gonna need healing? You know, in all eternity, there's gonna be no sickness, there's gonna be no sorrow, there's gonna be no death. Yet this talks about healing for the nations, and so it does raise a question, and I would like to address that just a little bit. Let's read Revelation 22, 2b and 3 again, and then I want you to listen to how this description is repeated, or similar description is found in Ezekiel 47 as we try to get to the answer to the question about a tree that provides healing. Revelation 22, 2 again, we read, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Now, again, this is interesting because if there's no curse related to sin or anything like that, then why do you need healing? Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12, talked about an interesting tree as well. He prophesied all the trees, all kinds of trees providing fruit will grow along both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary 
Their fruit will be used for food and their leaves for medicine. Now, that sounds almost identical to what we read about in the book of Revelation. What I want us to understand is that Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, I believe, are a description of, again, the millennial kingdom and not our eternal destiny. And so this is describing something different, but again, I see it modeled after what's going to happen for all eternity. For example, we read here in Ezekiel that this water is coming out of the sanctuary. It's not coming from the throne of God. And yet, there's some characteristics about this that look exactly like Revelation 22 concerning the fresh fruit and concerning the leaves that are used for medicine. Well, again, I don't think Ezekiel is talking about the same thing that that John is seeing in Revelation 22. It is only a foreshadowing of what's to come, that this millennial kingdom is a picture of what's going to happen for all eternity. And by the way, this to me adds new significance to the fact that at the end of the millennial kingdom, a lot of people are going to rebel against Christ again. It says all the kingdoms of the earth again, once again, are going to turn against Jesus And it just seems like it's just um, unfortunate because here's a a preview of what's going to happen, and yet they're going to reject that. Anyway, let me come back to this uh, earlier question about the leaves providing healing. Dr. Walverd, who's written extensively on end-time events, has this to say about that. He notes that the word healing, therapeian, can be understood as health-giving, The English word therapeutic is derived from this Greek word. Even though there is no sickness in the eternal state, the tree's fruit and leaves seem to contribute to the physical well-being of those in the eternal state. And I think that's probably how it is being used in this this eternal situation where we don't get sick anymore, that these, it's gonna be pleasant, it's gonna be wonderful, something about eating this is gonna be enjoyable, it's gonna be therapeutic. But let's keep reading in the middle of verse three, going through verse five. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. Let me stop for a moment, but... This can be translated bond servants, and the the Holman's Christian Standard, or the Christian Bible, uh, oftentimes uses the word slaves, where other versions use the word bond servants, because it is the more accurate term here. And when we think of slavery, of course, our mind goes to an American concept of this thing, but... Paul himself called himself a slave of Christ, a bond slave of Christ, and in that context, it was a good thing. A bond slave was somebody who chose to serve their master out of great love for their master, and we are the ones that I think are being described here, and so it says his slaves will serve him. We're going to be serving God forever. Verse four, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, will be identified with our creator. Night will no longer exist and people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Notice that these ones who are described as being slaves are ones who are gonna reign forever and ever. That in our eternal destiny, you know, when we think of, oh, I have to serve God, 
For Christians, it's a a wonderful joy. It's something we love doing, worshiping God. We love doing that. And here we we see that the way in which we're gonna serve our God is in some capacity, we're gonna serve and reign with God forever and ever. It's worth noting, by the way, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, God told Moses that nobody could look upon his face and live. And so Moses had asked God, show me your glory, and and God said to him, listen, I'll show you my glory, but I can't show you my face. In other words, I, I will put my hand and protect you as I pass by you. You can see me from behind, but nobody could see my face and live. But when we get here in Revelation, we read that we're gonna be able to see the very face of God. And I think the reason that we'll be able to is that we will be changed. I think our physical bodies are incapable of even digesting what a glimpse of God would look like. I think we would die immediately. But in our glorified body, we'll see God as he is. And it'll be, I think, a, a great joy for us. Continuing in verse six. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his slaves, there's the word again, to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Now, this, is, uh, this word quickly appears several times in the next several verses, and it appears elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And I think sometimes people kind of struggle over the idea that it says he's coming, you know, these things are gonna come quickly. They're gonna pass quickly. Jesus Christ is coming back quickly. In fact, verse seven continues, look, I'm coming quickly. The one who keeps the prophetic words of this book is blessed. But this, this idea of quickly, either we could look at this from God's perspective and realize that as even the Bible says, a day with the Lord or a thousand years is like a day with, with God. A thousand years is like one day. And so it's not long from God's perspective and it's possible that that's what's happening. But others think that what the word quickly here means is in rapid succession, In other words, that when these things begin to unfold in the book of Revelation, the things that are described up to chapter 22, then it's all gonna unfold very, very quickly from that point on. It's imminent. All these things are gonna be fulfilled right away, and that's possible. Dr. Wolvert suggests about this. The word means that the action will be sudden when it comes, not necessarily that it'll occur immediately. But still, from God's perspective, it's going to be quick. Continuing in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this Book John, it seems like, has a habit of falling down and bowing before these angels, and I believe it's because their appearance is just so glorious that, that John doesn't know, is this even Jesus, who was God in the flesh, before whom he could bow down? I, I don't know. Now, I find it interesting here that this angel, who is so amazingly glorious, describes himself as being a fellow slave. He says, I am a fellow slave with you. I serve my God. And I'm a fellow slave of you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. In other words, we're all included in this as ones who serve. Continuing to verse 10. 
He also said to me, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy go on being made filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness and let the holy go on being made holy. Now, I don't think that John here is encouraging people to continue in unrighteousness. You know, verse 11 says, let the unrighteous go on being unrighteous. There are other places in the book, in fact, we'll see one in a minute, where John is encouraging repentance. But many view that what this is is a statement of, uh, like a proverb type statement to indicate the way it's going to be, that the unrighteous are gonna continue in their unrighteousness. You know, these things are about to happen. You that are unrighteous, continue in your way. You who are righteous, continue in your way. These things are about to unfold, and people one day are gonna be locked into their position, their condition. Wearsby says about this, Jesus Christ's coming will occur so quickly that men will not have time to change their characters. That's more just a description of the way things are going to be. And it's possible, too, that Daniel sheds a little light on this in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10, where he said, many will be purified, cleansed, and refined. He's talking about the end days. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. And Daniel's describing these two groups. He's talking about the wise, and he says they're going to be purified, cleansed, and refined. In other words, I think the righteous are gonna become more and more righteous as these things unfold. They're gonna see them for what they are. They're gonna turn wholeheartedly to God, but none of the wicked are going to understand. And this is especially true of anybody that receives the mark of the beast, that I believe that repentance for them is gonna be impossible and therefore, they will continue. Let the unrighteous continue in their way. Let the, let the righteous continue in their way because judgment is coming and these things are gonna be all fleshed out. Continuing in verse 12, Jesus again says he's coming quickly or imminently. <clears throat> he says, look, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. I am Alpha the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is a reminder for us, as there are other places in the Bible, where we're told that there's a reward involved with serving Christ, that it really doesn't matter how we as Christians live. He's coming to repay us for the things that we do. The descriptions, though, that Jesus uses here to describe himself are ones that are used elsewhere to describe God the Father, and this is one of those references that proves the deity of Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. And I think part of what this is saying is that everything one day is gonna be summed up in Jesus. He was the beginning of it all. All things were created through him. He's gonna be the end of it. It's gonna be one day be wrapped up in Christ who's gonna forever turn things over to God the Father and they will rule forever and ever, but Christ is really for us all in all. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. I think this is a reference to Christians who have put their faith in Christ. We came to Christ dirty, and we've had our robes washed. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat I'm sorry, the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. 
Outside are the dogs. Now, some Jews regarded godless Gentiles as dogs in the Old Testament. Dogs were an unclean animal. And so we read that we will be able to enter into the city by the gates, but outside, verse 15, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I think for years when I read this, where it said outside are, this, are these different ones, the thought came to my mind that they're just hanging around outside the doors of the city. But I've come to sense, realize that that's not what it's saying at all. What it's, the point is, they're not gonna be in the city. There won't, won't be any. These ones have already been excluded. These are ones that are already in their eternal destiny and they'll never enter the city, which should be an encouragement for us to realize that there aren't gonna be murderers and there are idolaters and people who love and practice lying. The wicked will not be found in this city. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now, these descriptions also are found elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus came, of course, from the family line of David, and this kingdom is the marking of a new day, and so it's like the morning star. Now, let me give you a couple references that talk about these ideas. Uh, One is found in Isaiah 11 and verse one, where we read, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse was King David's father. And so you realize that what this is saying is that for a time being, what Isaiah was prophesying is that the stump of this tree, this Davidic tree, where the kings from David's line were ruling was gonna be cut off, or the tree would be cut off, but eventually a branch would grow out from that, and that branch, his name is Jesus, and so Jesus is called the branch in other places in the Bible. And then in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, you see both of these thoughts about David, but also the bright and morning star. I see him in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise in Israel. In the Old Testament, a star was a reference or an ancient symbol to sovereignty And this is a picture of the fact that that Jesus was gonna be born. This was a prophecy, by the way, that I think was made by Balaam, a prophet, an evil prophet in the Old Testament. And he was describing the star that was gonna appear from Jacob, from Israel, and a scepter that would arise from Israel. By the way, some have suggested that the Magi used this verse as a reference that made them look up and determine that the star they saw in the heavens was indeed an indication that the Messiah had been born, that they put together all the pieces of the puzzle and concluded that that's what had happened. Continuing in verse 17, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. The one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. Again, this is an invitation for everybody. You know, it's, it's after reading this book and knowing what's coming, there's this invitation to all of us. The Spirit says, come. We're the bride of Christ. We say, come. We're encouraging people, come to Christ. Anyone who's thirsty spiritually should come. Whoever desires living water as a gift should come. 
Of course, that's a reference to what Jesus said to the woman at the well, I offer living water that he's able, or running water. Now, despite, again, what was said earlier uh, about the unrighteous continuing in their way, there's gonna be a season where they'll have opportunity to put their faith in Christ as well until that decision is removed when they receive the mark of the, the beast. Verse 18 through the end of the book then. I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all the saints, which is us again. Amen. And amen, of course, is this word of affirmation, this word of agreement. Now, this is a very sobering way to end this thing, and I'm reminded of the Old Testament where we read about when the law was given to Moses in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32. We read, you must be careful to do everything I command you. Do not add anything to it or take anything away from it. I think that this is a warning for any that have a blatant disregard for for these words, that they think that they can just remove things or add things to them. I do, by the way, believe that this warning relates primarily to the book of Revelation and not necessarily to the whole Bible. Although, I think that the, the problem, the curse that comes upon somebody, I think does apply to the whole Bible. And so when I read about these extra books that people have made up that have, they claim are, are the word of God that I think are really the doctrines of demons like the Book of Mormon or I put the Quran in that. I think they're gonna suffer a similar faith. That's what's described here. But in Revelation, I think it's specifically talking about ones that disregard this message. And I think that's gonna happen in the end times. I think a lot of people are gonna say, oh, this is just, just rubbish. It's not true, and they, they'll want to remove these words, and they're not going to want to accept these words, or others may want to add to them, and, and in so doing, again, it's a real problem, and, and there's a strong warning not to do this. Now, that concludes the book of Revelation, and I want to conclude our time with a few of the questions that uh, people have asked me. Uh, The first one is this. Someone wrote in Daniel chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, we read of a lion with eagle's wings. I've heard scholars say this represents Great Britain and the United States. Do you believe that the animals in these verses represent also Russia, Germany, and the reborn Roman Empire? If so, then looking at Revelation 12, 14, is the U.S. the eagle that is protecting Israel in the three and a half years mentioned? When I was growing up, I heard a lot about the U.S. not mentioned in Revelation, and in discussions with friends, I've heard this same phrase reiterated. Now, the person who asked this question referred to Revelation 12, 14, so let me read that. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was fed for a time, times, and half a time. The woman in Revelation 12, 14 is Israel, 
And so this is describing how this woman is gonna be really flown out of there. Some think it's an actual airplane. I don't think so necessarily. But that they're gonna be protected from Satan's efforts to try to destroy Israel. And so they're being described as ones who are given two wings like an eagle so that they can escape. Uh, my mind immediately goes to the Old Testament because when the people of Israel were led out of Egypt, they were described in a similar fashion. In other words, even though Moses physically led them out of Egypt and they made their way to the promised land, God describes that as being carried on eagle's wings. And so I think it's really just symbolic of the miraculous uh, protection that God's gonna provide for Israel in getting them to a place of safety when, the Satan, when Satan goes after them. Now, there was a reference in this question to Daniel chapter seven, verses four through seven, where you see a description of some of these beasts uh, that are gonna be related to the end time kingdom. One of the beasts uh, in Daniel chapter four, seven is identified as Babylon. It's a winged lion, and I believe, by the way, that the beasts in Daniel chapter seven and, and other places in Daniel, I think these are spelled out pretty clearly what those particular beasts represent. Uh, but one of them is a winged lion. And so the, the fact that it has wings, I don't think is an indication of, of maybe America or Great Britain or something like this. Babylon, uh, the winged lion was actually one of their main symbols for their country. And if you, have, in fact, go to... Um, the Egyptian Museum or whatever you'll see, or the, I'm sorry, the Brit British Museum, you will see uh, these huge monuments, these Babylonian um, statues that have wings on a lion, and that was their description. Now, Daniel describes that the wings are torn off, and many scholars believe that that's a rep reference to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, this, this mighty ruler, was for a time being stricken with insanity, that, that the wings were ripped off for a time being, and I think that that's probably the case. Because this first animal here, the winged lion, I think is a description of Babylon. The second animal in Daniel 7 is the Medo-Persian Medo Empire, the Persians who came in and took over. And then the third one we know is the Greek Empire. And then the fourth animal that's found in Daniel 7, from my perspective, is the revised Roman Empire. And so I do think that there is some description here related to a revived Roman Empire. Now, here's what I want to say about just the whole subject of, of, of the wings and the eagles and trying to sort some of these things out. I think there's a tendency for Christians to interpret prophecy in light of what's happening in their own times. For example, some of these ideas, I think, of the United States and... and um, Great Britain being the wings or whatever came out of World War II. And people thought we were in the end times. And I think it's very, we have to be very careful not to look at our times in which we're living and be, you know, attached too much significance to that. Because I don't believe that that's what's happening in this description. Now, as to the question of the U.S. being mentioned in the, or not being mentioned in the Bible, I think that there could be a, a few reasons why. And again, the initial question had to do with, do you think this is the U.S. and whatever? I don't think so. Uh, but um, we're not mentioned in the Bible. Why? Well, 
it's possible that the reason the U.S. isn't mentioned is that the focus of the end times throughout Revelation and other places, Matthew 24, 25, the focus is the Middle East. And it's what's going to be happening over there and the revived Roman Empire and things that are going to be happening at that end of the world. And so it's possible that it's just an issue of focus that, that we don't factor in that much. Second, it's possible that by the time these things unfold, we will no longer be a world power, uh, that, that our uh, significance will wane so much. And obviously, when you come to the point of the Antichrist ruling in the world in this, this revived Roman Empire, uh, you know, that's going to be the world power, not, not the United States. And so it's possible we're here, but we're not a world power anymore. And then the third possibility is that we, we will cease to be. Uh, which concerns me because I do think that God's judgment is going to come upon our nation because we're not listening to God. Let me move to a second question. I hope that addresses the first one. It was a very good question. Second question is, what will our role be as Gentiles in the reinstitution of the sacrificial system during the millennium? Uh, I believe, uh, first of all, there's no reference to this that I can find in the Bible, you know, I was looking in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel where there's a description of a person called the prince that's part of this uh, sacrificial system of the millennial kingdom and people wonder who's the prince. Well, most people seem to think it's actually literally King David. I don't know for sure, but there's no special reference to what is gonna be happening with Gentiles. But I believe that anyone that's living in this millennial kingdom who has put their trust in Christ will be required to participate in this temple worship. And so it'll be for Jews and Gentiles alike. The two will be merged together because we are, of course, descendants of Abraham. As, as Gentile believers, we are part of this, you know. Uh, God has put together the two as one. And so I think we will be offering sacrifices. Uh, I used to wrestle with the question why we were offering sacrifices in the past. And the reason I've wrestled with it is because we, they sacrificed in the past because Christ hadn't come yet and so it was a picture of, of Christ who was going to come. And once Christ came, Christ was the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And so my thought was, why would you go back to that? But I've since come to realize that the future millennial kingdom is actually a looking back to Christ dying on the cross. And so they will do it as a way of honoring what Jesus already did for them on the cross. The final question I have here today is this. My question again has to do with the timing of the rapture. What would be an argument against the rapture occurring any time during the tribulation period and not just prior to the wrath of God being poured out? Since we know the arguments for and against the pre-trib and pre-wrath positions, especially when considering the warnings about being ready for his coming, it seems as though it is quite possible for Christ to rapture the church any time during the tribulation period, but again, prior to God's wrath being poured out. Again, this, uh, this is a very uh, good question. Uh, I have placed... The rapture, first of all, after the middle of the tribulation for a reason. The main reason is this, that in, in, Paul was writing to the Thessalonians and they were asking about whether Jesus had come back or not and whether Jesus was com coming to reign. And Paul implied that the Thessalonians would actually see the Antichrist. 
that they would witness him being announced to the world. And we know that in the biblical timeline, the Antichrist, although he's gonna sign an agreement for seven years with Israel, he, he will not be revealed for who he is until the middle. And so to me, this is a confirmation that the Antichrist will finally be revealed as the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period. And Paul said, you will see that. When you see this one desecrating the temple, which we know is gonna happen in the middle of the tribulation, uh, then you know the time is near. Well, uh, I think we're gonna see that event. And so to me, it has to happen sometime after the midpoint. Then it raises the question, well then where after the midpoint would it happen? Now, from my perspective, the rapture is recorded in Revelation chapter seven. And the, the events of Revelation chapter six precede chapter seven, and so you look at chapter six, and you say, what, what happened in chapter six? And chapter six, if you may remember, was about the, the seals, the six seals of God's judgment that were gonna come upon the world. Well, the fifth of these seals, the fifth of the seven seals, and the seventh one, by the way, is the, uh, the bunch of next judgments are wrapped up in that sixth, seventh one. But the fifth seal is a reference to the fact that there's gonna be people that are gonna be martyred for their faith. And so I think that's us. I don't believe that that's the Jewish nation. I think God's gonna be protecting at least 144,000 of them. The persecution, of course, is gonna start against the Jewish nation, but I believe it's us. I think we are going to be martyrs for Christ. And so that takes place after the fifth seal or at the fifth seal. When you get to the sixth seal, some unique things happen. In the sixth seal, you have a violent earthquake, the sun turns black, the stars fall from heaven. Now, I think we could be gone before the sixth seal because that sixth seal is either intended to be a sign that the rest of the judgment is coming. In other words, God is revealing through the heavens, and there are verses that indicate God's gonna do this, but God is revealing through the heavens what he's about to do on earth. It's a warning for the world. And that's possible. And if it is a warning, it's possible we would be here to witness that. But it's also possible that that sixth seal is the beginning of the wrath of God, in which case we'd be gone by then. Now, if that's true, then we could conceivably be raptured any time after the midpoint, but before you get to that sixth seal. And so it's possible that the length of time in which we would be going through this fifth seal stage of persecution would not be that long before Christ would come back. And I certainly hope that's the case. Of course, my greatest hope is that he'd come back before the tribulation even starts, although I think scripture teaches otherwise. Uh, Why don't we wrap this up with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you again for your word. And uh, for these words, and and thank you for this description of what we have to look forward to. We recognize this world is not our home. This is a world that's been scarred by sin, and and one day, one day things are going to be made new, and and they're not just new, they're new and improved. They're going to be wonderful, and we're so grateful to you because we recognize we don't deserve this. Uh, We recognize, oh Lord, we're all like sheep who have gone astray. We've all turned aside. And had you not sent your son for us, we could not have eternal life through faith in him. And so we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.